How good does that sound? That is the sweet sound of an escape to the bush. Welcome. You're listening to the Bush Wanderlust podcast with hosts Ali Smith and Katie Watson. Buckle in as these two birds from the bush take you on a road trip. Around the Narrabri region in northwest New South Wales. Ali and Katie will introduce you to the lovable locals. Everyone is really down to earth and so welcoming. Just call him and enjoy yourself. Cheers. Cheers. And explore all the magnificent wonders right here in Australia's backyard. He's, he's a big sucker, 10 to 15 centimetres long and bright pink. As the locals say, just you, five million stars, a mountain range and a yowie. It's time to hit the road. Hello and welcome. Today, the Bush Wanderlust podcast is road tripping up the Nandiwar Ranges, past the spectacular Sawn Rocks, and into the natural and ancient wonderland of Mount Kapitar National Park, where we will find all sorts of surprises, like Sawn Rocks. They are by far the starkest reminder of the park's volcanic history, and the rock formation looks like a gigantic wall of organ pipes. The sheer size and grandeur of the rocks makes you feel so small in comparison. Bushfires blazed through the park in 2019. But thankfully, the flora and fauna are now bouncing back to life. And leading the recovery charge has been the mighty and iconic pink slug. Byron Bay might have the Hemsworth brothers, Gunnedah, Miranda Kerr, but here in the Narrabri region, we can claim this slippery little sucker as our very own. I personally am yet to sight one of these famous pink slugs, but apparently they are there. So here, to share the secrets of slug hunting and the wonders of Mount Kapitar, is bushwalking and orchid enthusiast, slug sleuth and country vet, Dr Michael Reed. Thank you for joining us, Reedy. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me here. We love the pink slug here in Narrabri, but I've got to ask, is it true? Is it exclusively ours? It is, it is. It's endemic to the top of Kapitar, which is quite unique, yes. So it's its own species and it's only found there. That's so cool. It is cool. They're just a fascinating animal, you know. Who would put a pink slug on top of a mountain? And can you tell us a little bit about the slippery little suckers? <laughs> he's, he's a big sucker. So uh, <laughs> when you get a big one, they'd be 10 to 15 centimetres long and bright pink. They, they look like they belong on a coral reef. They don't look like they belong on top of a mountain. Yeah, no, they're very special. They leave a bit of a pink slime behind sometimes. If you, uh, if you pick them up, you will get a bit of pink slime on your hand. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> I was about to ask because they do look – I mean, I love pink – Yep. But they're just that bright neon pink and they look so welcoming and friendly. My father actually picked one up once when he was up there and it did leave a fairly ugly pink slime on his hand. <laughs> so I tend not to pick them up. I'm sure it's ecologically unsound to pick them up as well. But yeah. Why are they pink? I suspect it's a danger sign. So I suspect it's don't eat me. Yeah. But it makes you pull a camera out and take photos. Oh, that's clever. So they're a clever slug as well. I think so. I think so. You are right. It would not be cool to pick them up. No. You should just leave them alone. Yes. Is it because of the volcanic history or why are the pink slugs found at Mount Kapitar? Kapitar is just its own unique world. I think it's roughly about 18 million years old. And as it all eroded away and, and just became this isolated sort of peak, you've got these endemic animals and plants that have 
stayed there and that are nowhere else. So there's whole piles. There's carnivorous cannibalistic snails up there, which I think are tiny and, and most people would never see them. But uh, I think there's a whole group of them that get people excited um, who like cannibalistic snails. Wow. Um, <laughs> and there's quite a few endemic plants. And yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So it's just its remoteness and its height. I've been out to Mount Capitar many times, up to the summit, and I've never seen one of these pink slugs. How do people see them? When's the best time to find the you, pink you've slug? You've got to be in the know. Um, okay. Right, so <laughs> Let us in on the secret. I, I think they're out early, so I tend to pick them up after a bit of rain. You know, if there's a light mist or there's a light rain going on up there early in the morning, I believe they might be out at night crawling on the trees and getting food on the trees. So if you're up there in the cold night with a spotlight, you could probably find them, but most people find them early in the morning before about 10 o'clock and there's a couple of spots near the summit that are more frequented. But I think national parks now have a an app out called a slug sleuth. So they're trying to track in other areas where they might be and if you're up there and you find them and you can get onto the app and log your findings so they can keep track of them. Wow. Do you remember your first sighting? I think I, I think it was actually near the cabins at the top. But I remember my first big day was a uh, Boxing Day when my family had come up from Sydney and said, what do you do on Boxing Day? And Narrabri and I, I go, well, you go on a slug hunt, of course. <laughs> you can imagine what the family said. But we would have found 100 plus slugs up near West Capitara Rocks Lookout. And it was, it was, a, it was a beautiful day, just a rainy Boxing Day. And it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. You hit the jackpot. Hit the jackpot, yeah. I haven't seen as many ever again. So you often go up there and find four or five, but they're elusive. They are. Are there any other quirks about the pink slug? What do they eat? I suspect they're an algae eater, but that's, that's, yeah, I think they crawl on the trees and they're taking something off the bark. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. They are. You are lucky enough to have Mount Capitar really in your backyard. Yes. And I think you probably try and get up there whenever you can. Describe for our listeners who aren't from the region just the beauty and the grand scale of the area. When I first came, I actually went out to Weewar, and so I was sitting out at Weewar in the flat plains, and I used to look across and see these mountains, and it was the, the thing that kept me sane for a few years. And they literally just rise up out of the plains, and so you can drive there. It's a windy, narrow road that's dirt at the bottom, and I think that puts a lot of people off. And you get to the top, and you've often got the place to yourself, and it's just it's, there's magnificent walks up there. It's so well looked after. The national parks do an incredible job up there, so it's probably one of the best catered parks I've seen for with the barbecues and the the toilet facilities and camping facilities up there. And the walks are incredible. You know, there's short walks, there's long walks. You can do a 20K return down to Scutt's Hut and it's it's magic. There's waterfalls, there's yeah, You can go where there's no one there and that's what I love. <laughs> Could you tell us what your favourite walk is to do at Mount Capitar? Oh. <clears throat> or recommend one to bushwalking enthusiasts like Look, yourself? I, there's so many different little ones. The Governor is a lovely little walk. You know, it, it gets your heart rate going and you climb up on the top and, and you sit up and you look at the world. Yellow Danita near the base is probably would have to be the best. And every time I do it, I think it wasn't this hard last time. And it's a steep climb. You get to the top, you take your billy, you boil a billy, looking out across the world, you can see the Warren Bungles. It's just a magic spot to be. I believe on a clear day from the summit, you can see 10% of New South yeah, Wales. I've, I've heard that, that too, yeah. yeah, and I think it's true. We don't get too many clear days, no. uh, <laughs> especially the last few years, but you can see an awfully long way when you're at the summit, uh, which is lovely. What a nice escape, really. Absolutely. And My paperwork day on a Thursday is often spent near the summit. <laughs> I can feel the odd phone call if I need to. <laughs> when you have wandered off the beaten track, what are some of the wonderful things that you've discovered in your explorations? 
obviously we're going to get round to orchids, but yeah, I've, I've stumbled across a few different orchids. I literally fell over the one that was a new species. But the other day I was up there climbing cliff in the rain and in a little cave there's someone has deposited a statue of a monkey, a Balinese-style monkey statue in the middle of nowhere. It would have taken an awful lot of effort to get it there and it just it sits in its little cave looking out across the southwest part of the park and you just wonder what inspired someone to do that. But it's pretty cool too. <laughs> so, yeah. It is cool. Magic spot. I believe the park's about 18 million years old and I was talking about that with my boys a while ago and they're, of course, dinosaur mad as most young fellas are and, and it's fascinating to believe that dinosaurs went extinct about 60 million years ago and yet that volcanic range was made 18 million years ago. So there's a 40 million year gap between the end of dinosaurs and that mountain range being pushed up by volcanic activity. Yeah, that's which incredible. It is incredible. So it's an incredible time span and then obviously it's, a, it's eroded over the last 18 million years to create what we've got. Sawn Rocks is beautiful. You know, Sawn Rocks is a lovely nice walk in there and you've got that I believe it's a crystalline structure on the rocks coming down there it's a favorite you know if people turn up and, and want to go for a nice easy walk and drive it's it's a lovely spot to go to that north side of the park has got war gorge as well a little bit harder to get into especially after rain but a, a beautiful walk when you get in there and some nice little water holes there's very little on the northern side of the park that's open they're the only two I suppose tracks there are obviously the bushwalking group and there are a few individuals who get in there and walk. There's so much to be found on that side of the park that hasn't even been looked at, I believe. It makes you feel so small and insignificant, doesn't it, when you, firstly, I guess, when you physically see Sawn Rocks, but then hearing you describe how old it is. The time frame. It's, it is amazing. Uh, well, we would normally ask our other guests about their love story. And <laughs> as absolutely fabulous as your better half, Jenna, is, your other great love is the orchid reading. I have to ask you about this flower. <laughs> I just I got lucky enough to have an orchid named after me, I suppose. As a kid, I used to work in an orchid nursery in Sydney. I love nature and it was just followed from there, I suppose, that when I was out there bushwalking with Wesley actually, stumbled across a few orchids and just started to have a look at what was in Caputar. And because Caputar is so infrequently visited, there's so much up there that people don't know. So we've we've stumbled across a couple of we think we've gotten two new species now. We've got a, another couple that are, are quite rare and only found in that area. Last year we stumbled across one that was named before but hasn't been seen for about ten years. So it just I mean it's 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 a silly hobby that keeps me away from work sometimes and yeah gives me a little bit of mental health relief I suppose. Wesley is your son. Wesley is my son. Who yes. I think I can say is equally enthusiastic about the wonders of nature as you are. Yeah, he's a little bit more uh, reptile driven these days. He prefers a good snake or a, a lizard, but he still knows his orchids pretty well. So, and he's studying ecology, so hopefully he'll make a lifestyle out of it. Lucky him. Yeah, lucky him. I agree. Tell us a little bit about the name of the orchid. Its scientific name is Bunnachylus reedii. Not what I expected. It's it, to be honest, it's a fairly ugly little green greenwood orchid. And I said earlier. If you saw it in your lawn, you would mow over it. And when I was taking photos and I didn't know what I was looking at, I I sent them off to Lachlan Copeland, who's a PhD botanist over at Coffs Harbour. And so Lachlan became the source of my identifications. And I think he does an awful lot of this across New South Wales. So he has all these people sending him incredible photos and he has a good idea of what's growing around the state. And I think he's in a process of writing a book about it. He just identifies things and he told me that there was possibility that was a new species and just to get the photos and eventually he came over when they were in flower and he took some samples and described it and one Christmas I got a, a parcel 
just said it was an orchid magazine, not widely read, as you could imagine. And um, <laughs> I think it said, see page 37 or whatever, and there was an orchid there described by him, and it was just, yeah, called Bunnacylus radii. How did you feel? How proud were you? Well, look, I was, I, was, I was stoked, let's be honest. Everybody wants something named it's after them. It's not every day they? you get an orchid named no, after No, no, no. My better half did think it probably should have had her name on it for Quite the sacrifices right. she makes when I have to go up the mountain by myself, but... <laughs> Yes. Now, look, I was stoked. It's an honour and I don't think many people, yeah, get that opportunity. So it's good. It's very good. Were you worried about it during the fires? And we've recently had earlier on in the year some bad bushfires on our mountain. Were you worried about its survival? Have you been up since to check for it? I have. I have, yeah. Look, I think that the fire took out a lot of the park. But when you get up there, there's a lot of areas it didn't get to too. And I know they found the slugs again in a big hurry and they were very keen to check them out because the fire ripped straight over some of their main areas. The orchid, yes, I've checked that. I've seen a few in bud, so it's still surviving up there. But there must have been so much that was lost, you know, because so many of these things are found in such a isolated small area. You know, there's a, a couple that are up there would be found in a 20-metre area and nowhere else have I found them. doesn't mean they're not there, but they're very isolated. So, yeah, I think fires like that will cause grief to so many of our endemic species. We've got our rock wallabies up there and those sort of things get, I mean, they can't handle too many fires like that going through there. So, But it has come back. Thankfully, after it rained, I think it's really bouncing back now, which is beautiful. How did you feel being such a keen bushwalker and also a lover of animals and a lover of nature, just knowing fires are harsh, they're horrible, and when they rip through something, when you first started to go back up and just to see it starting to come back to life, how did you feel? Yeah, look, it's a relief, isn't it? Yep. It's, it's funny. It's, it's, it becomes like your backyard. You become protective of it and it's a beautiful spot. So, yes, I, I felt a lot of relief, particularly when we started to find the things we're looking for. So we, we crossed into a few areas just to check what had and had not been burnt. Yeah. And the orchids survived. I believe they have. <laughs> Reedy, you're so busy in your job as a vet, which we'll get to soon. I just wonder how you have time to be discovering orchids. How does that amateur, <laughs> I call it amateur botanist, how does it work? How do you? I think it's mental health. You know, we've all, we all have to have a hobby. You know, and I, I don't care whether it's, whether you like restoring cars or I don't know, you know, growing plants, doing whatever. I think you, you just need something that gets you away from from the mundane parts of your life sometimes, yeah, to give you an escape. So that's my escape, yeah. Your day job is as a vet, which of course often goes into the night. Indeed. You seem to always be clocking up the miles on intrepid adventures to save and help animals. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the day in the life of you as a country vet. What <laughs> do you deal with? Everything. We're spoilt out here. You know, we're far enough away from the major centres that – we get to see everything and we get to try to fix everything. So we could be doing a caesarean on a guinea pig. We could be vaccinating puppies all day and looking at cats and then we can charge out and try to stitch up a camel. You know, I mean, we constantly get different things. And I would say once a week there's something new comes through the door that I haven't seen in my 30 years. So there's always variety. What I find is the young vets that come out here are chasing that. You know, they could be in the city and just looking at dogs and cats all day doing the same boring thing day in, day out, whereas out here it's it's exciting. It's scary because, you know, a lot of it's first principles. You do the best you can, but you just have to get in and try something. So we do some crazy – I don't know if crazy is the word, but we do some pretty wild things and we have a lot of success and there's, yeah, there's a satisfaction that comes with that. 
Yeah, you're a great bet. It's why you're very popular in town <laughs> also. What are some of the stories, I guess, that have stayed with you or some of the quirky days? Well, frequently those stories are more about our clients than our animals and we've got to be very careful with those. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it nice. Because, yeah, look, look it, it, you meet all sorts of people and all sorts of animals. And so, as I said, the variety does blow you away. I mean, I can remember attempting a, a caesarean on a horse in a paddock by myself with just the owner and, and virtually no backup. And we weren't successful, but we spent six hours trying. You know, and I don't, that's the beauty of our job. If you were in the Hunter Valley, it's referred. You know, here there is no choice. You have to try and do the best you can. And I think we do. You know, I think I've been spoiled over the years with working with some great people. So, yeah, we work as a team and we back each other up. It's, it's, I think it's a team job. Yeah, it would be really hard to do without someone having your back and, and supporting you. People love their pets and animals, sometimes more than their spouse and children. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so I'm sure it's a very emotional position to be in to have to try and a challenging one to have to try and save that pressure of saving someone's family pet. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that. Like how do you cope with that kind of side of it? Is it your release of going bushwalking and things like that to take a break? I think, I think it is, you know, because there is a lot of pressure and I think that's the dark side of vet science is that, you know, we're doing an incredible job that gives us a lot of variety but there's a lot of pressure put on us by our clients and by ourselves sometimes and you need a release from that. And, and our release here is having a team that has each other's back. So when you have a bad day, you've got someone who can pat you on the back and, and make you feel better. Because not everything goes according to plan, of course. You know, we, we do the best, but not everything works. But so, you know, and I suppose we just try to address that. In, in my practice, I think we try to address it by having each other's back, by trying to make each day fun and, yeah, making sure we have time for coffee and tea and cake and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's lovely. Yeah, yeah, it is. What brought you to this area, Michael? A job. Yeah. <laughs> I was sitting on the beach at Port Macquarie, uh, recently unemployed, Thinking I'm 24 and an adult, I probably need to find a job. And um, I had a choice of Wee War or Wonka. I chose Wee War and I got lucky enough that I worked with Martin Powell for probably close to 25 years. And, you know, Martin Powell was a great mentor. He probably taught me everything I know, which is a little scary for him. <laughs> but I just, I landed on my feet, you know, in a good area with the perfect boss, friend, partner. And then, of course, yeah, things move on. You find your own friends. I played a lot of rugby here and had a lot of fun and met a lot of people. Yep, raised my kids and, yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> Not what I expected, to be honest. I really thought I'd be here for a year or two and then I'd move on, but, yeah. And what made you stay? I think, you know, it's community. Obviously, to start with, it was a job that allowed me to grow and so that's good. And then it's the people you meet, it's the relationships you have, and so – I think I was, I was talking to you earlier and I said that my wife went away recently for, for three months down to Sydney and so I was pretty excited to be moving to Sydney. But after a few weeks, was more excited to come home because of the community that's here and I think we miss community. Uh, that's really nice. It is nice. You were also, I guess you were mentored when you were young, which is probably why you are such a great mentor to the young staff that are working for you now. I know that from, I guess, personal experience when they come out. Yep. But being a vet in the bush is pretty different to being a vet in the city. How pleased are you that you went down the path of becoming and I guess staying a country vet? I don't think I'd still be a vet if I was in the city. Yep. I think we always look over the fence and see it's greener on the other side and so I often imagine another job I could have. And I still think watering plants in Bunnings looks really nice at times. <laughs> but I, I really, I'm not doing anything else because of the variety. 
and because I've been fortunate enough to have really good people around me as I work. Yeah, and I think most of the young ones that come here, they're looking for the same thing. You know, they're looking for an adventure. They're looking for a country lifestyle. They're looking for variety, and hopefully we can find that. Yeah. Your two youngest sons, Angus and Walter, often do the rounds with you. Yep. I'd love for you to give us a little snapshot of their out-of-this-world knowledge, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> vet and science. Look, there's a story I can't tell because my wife would kill me. Um, <laughs> but, look, their sick days are often spent in the car watching preg testing, bull testing. Yeah, it's what we have to do. You know, I've, I've talked to – I talked to a vet, I think she was a Tenerfield vet who – said she often had to take the baby with her when she was bull testing and so she'd test a bull, check the baby, test a bull, check the baby. It's what we have to do to keep going, to keep our job going. Yeah. Yeah, so my kids have probably picked up a lot. Their knowledge of anatomy is quite extensive. Um, <laughs> we have to curb their language sometimes when they're talking about anatomy. <laughs> but it, it's good. And, I mean, they understand. I think they understand life and death, you know, more so than, yeah, maybe some of the city kids would. Yeah. Can we share the camel story? The camel story? The one hump. Oh, the ca- <laughs> So Angus was turning up to uh, his first, I suppose it was his interview to go into kindergarten and Jenna, my wife, took him up there and he had to go into the room with his teacher and she sat in there and she asked him some questions and apparently she showed him a series of sight cards. She showed him a picture of a camel and she said, what is that? And he said, it's a dromedary. And she said, no, 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 have another look. And she said, it, what is it? And he said, it's a dromedary. She said, no, it's a camel. He said, no, it's a dromedary. That's a one-hump camel, a Bactrian has two humps. Jenna said she could hear the laughter pouring out of the room and, and the teacher walked out the door and said, well, I've just learnt something from a preschooler. <laughs> <laughs> so they do that. They have a love of knowledge and obviously we shape our children and my children get shaped by hearing a lot about nature and, yeah, and about vet science. Yeah. And what pets do you have and have you had? Because I imagine a vet can end up with quite the menagerie. Well, we've had a little bit of everything. There's a dog in the backyard that drives me crazy. There's quite a few chooks and we've just hatched out another four little chickens last night. So we we're setting up a brooder last night to keep them going. There's a few parrots left in the aviary. We've always had a few fish. When Wesley was home, we had a series of reptiles. We bred about 80 bearded dragons there for a while. <laughs> He thought he'd made a fortune. He sold these bearded dragons and he made about $800 and he said, Dad, this is so good, I'm making so much money. I reckon it cost me over $1,000 to feed them. But, um, <laughs> but uh, look, we've, we've, we've had most things. Yes, you have to sometimes stop yourself. And it's a vet problem. The vets are always taking home strays and orphans. And, yes, it's something that we've got to be very careful with. Otherwise, you end up with a vast menagerie. It gets a little bit easier as you get older not to be attached to everything. Yes. Yeah, mm. like a farmer's wife bringing the potty lamb home every season. <laughs> exactly. I've had to say no to a few potty lambs at times. It's been very tempting. But <laughs> Reedy, tell me a little bit about, I guess, growing up and deciding to become a vet. I, don't, I really didn't decide to become a vet till later, I think, in school. I really wanted to be some sort of scientist, ecologist, marine biologist was the top of the list. I couldn't find a way that that could pay as a profession. So I started to look for a job that would not involved wearing a coat and tie to work because that would not be right and involved animals and involved science and I didn't really like people so I just thought that that would be the perfect job. And I was wrong because vet is all about people. You know, vet is all about your ability to communicate what you're doing and how you're doing it and what may all go wrong and right and how things work. Yeah, it was my desire to be involved in an animal science, I think, that got me there and I haven't worn a tie since making that decision. <laughs> <laughs> and sure. 
when you asked before about vet stories and they often revolve around people and there are people that make life difficult for everybody there are some beautiful people out here and we have some great relationships with so many of our clients both farm based and town based and they trust you you know they're putting their pets in your hands and so it's it's wonderful and you can't please everybody that's what i have learned but you try your best and yeah you make a lot of good friends along the way yeah the region is looking green and great at the moment but during times of drought how tough is that on vets because you're probably a bit of a accidental counsellor in your role as well. We did a lot of counselling for others and I think we sometimes counselled ourselves. I've never seen an impact on the town of Narrabri and Weewar like the drought caused. You know, it damaged businesses. It was awful. And I think the towns in many ways shut down before the farmers did. And so from a business point of view, we lost staff and we struggled and I'd never seen that happen before. What I did love though was when it rained, and things turn green, how quickly people bounce back, the resilience. Maybe it's an Australian thing, maybe it's a country thing, but I just love that resilience. And, and obviously that's what we're all riding that wave now. Let's hope we can keep riding it for a little bit longer. After the rain, we're now also seeing all these different sorts of birds. As a bushwalker, are you into birds too? I'm a bird man. Oh. Yeah, yeah. How can you not be? <laughs> what will people see at Mount Capita bird-wise? Birdwise, look, if, if, you're, if you're hanging off the side of Yellow Dunida, you'll often see a, a nice wedgie. There's always a few of the raptors floating around there, riding the currents. There's spotted quail thrush up there. You'll often find them. There's some lovely finches floating around. I saw a speckled warbler the other day. I didn't even know what it was, so I sent a photo to my son and he identified it. But, it, you know, if you sit still, it's amazing what will come to you. You know, if you just take your time, it's amazing what you see up there. And, of course, we get our mountain lowries. We're sort of in that gap between east and west, so we get a lot of the eastern birds sort of meeting at Caputar with the western birds. Yeah, you get some amazing things up there. How special. It is. It's very special. Yeah. In your neck of the woods, you can get the superb parrot too, which is lovely. Oh. I have seen that in the corner of Nowley. The other bird that people were excited about recently was the return of the plains turkey. Yes. Yes. I saw my first one the other day out towards Nowley, and the farm I went to, I brought it up, and it's amazing our farmers what they know. You know, and he was he was fascinated and he'd already done all his research and he had multiple birds and he knew where they all were. People were saying, you know, in their lifetime they've never seen them here. So it's 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 fascinating how they just come in on a on a whim, you know, something changes ecologically, environmentally, and, and these birds come in. And you'll see that occasionally. There's a few things I've seen come in at different times. The budgies. The budgies have come back and they've been missing for the last four or five years. Yeah. It's good. Oh, nice. It is nice. Now in our final segment, and I think I might know what you're going to say, but we asked each of our guests if you were making a postcard to send to someone who hadn't been to our region before, what photograph would you put, what sort of snapshot would you put on the front of that postcard? Well, I think it's pretty easy. We'd have to put the slug, possibly with a vista of Capitar's skyline behind it. But, yeah, I mean, it, yes, I think the park is, is just a beautiful place. And most of the job interviews I do when people, young vets are looking to come here, they talk about their interests, most of them list bushwalking and I just point at the park and say it's it's yours you know it's just an incredible place to go yeah and on the back of that postcard is there any local tips or tricks or hot spots that you'd recommend outside the park outside the park yep you know look I, I don't know I, just, I do love just driving around the district yep. you know obviously we've got Yarry Lake and we've got the scrub and they're such diverse environments and so as I drive around and, and we go from the natural wonders we have, and then we go on to the cotton and the wheat crops and the cattle and everything else. You know, it's it's a diverse area and, you know, you can like some of those things or, or hate them, but it's a diverse area and it looks incredible. But it's a great place to be. 
I can't believe you didn't put the orchid on the front. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been keeping that quiet for a while. <laughs> thank you, Reedy, for joining us. It thank was you. great to chat to you. Yes, thank you for sharing your story. Nice. And thank the orchid, you and your orchid with us. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for listening to the Bush Wanderlust podcast. We wish you all a very Merry Christmas and we're especially thinking of those who can't be with their loved ones on Christmas Day. Thank you also to our sponsor, the Narrabri Region Visitor Information Centre. The team there has a treasure trove of knowledge about all things Narrabri, from the pink slug to the yowie and more. They know all the hidden gems, so call in or head over to www.visitnarrabri.com.au to find out more or follow the Narrabri Region or Bush Wanderlust podcast on social media. Stay tuned for more podcast interviews, and if you enjoyed listening today, please hit subscribe, leave a message, or share with a friend. Hope to catch you next time.